Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Salatu ve selamu aleyke ya seyyidi ya Resulullah sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem. So alhamdulillah that Allah gave us life to come together again. Some things we take to be take for granted but they're not always to be taken for granted. Alhamdulillah that we're here again and that we have the opportunity to uh, make intention and, and make action to reconnect with those who came before us. Um, we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, forgives them and empties our heart from any ill feelings towards them and towards any of the Muslims, although that's sometimes very difficult and not required in every situation, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, so, We left off last time, having finished one of the introductions. Um, as I was preparing for this time, I kind of decided that I'm not going to belabor the, in belabor the introductions too much. So we'll do a little bit more, and then hopefully we'll be able to begin the actual text, inshallah. But uh, one of the introductions is kind of important to, to look at and to think about in the context of the text and in the context of the broader trajectory of Islamic studies and Muslim thought. And so that is an introduction that's written by, uh, it's kind of like a, it's not really an introduction, it's, it's kind of like an opening essay written by uh, Sheikh Hassanin Muhammad Makhlouf, rahimahullah ta'ala, who died in 1410 after Hijrah. Uh, so, you know, Relatively recent, obviously he read Sheikh Abdul Fattah's book and he wrote this about it, so he's a contemporary of his. Uh, he's the former Mufti of Egypt. Uh, as we, we've kind of mentioned this before that, you know, may Allah inshallah return the glory days back to Al-Azhar. But really the glory days of Al-Azhar are kind of like pre-1950s. And, and I'm, I'm a very biased Azhari, and I'll still say that. You know, pre-1950s, and that's like really the glory days. Those are, because the people who are representing the institution of Al-Azhar in that period are the ones who went through the older educational model, which was much uh, more rig uh, rigorous. So uh, Sheikh, Muhammad, uh, Sheikh Hassanin Muhammad Makhlouf is kind of from that generation, you know. Uh, he's kind of like from the last people in that generation, so to speak. And he was a former Mufti of Egypt. And he says the following. Uh, he wrote this letter actually to Sheikh Abdul Fattah. And it's, it's, it, it's kind of beautiful to see. Like, you know, I don't know if sometimes we think about it. Uh, probably most of us, many of us who are old enough to remember, you know, there was like a world before the internet. <laughs> you know? uh, even sometimes people might 
thing like before text messages and WhatsApp groups and, and social media and all this stuff, there was the world of email. And that was actually a different world. Some of us remember like email groups and people used to sit and write actual long emails, you know? It'd be like a page long email analysis of the situation or whatever else it might be. People used to still write and read, you know? And before that, there was a world too. Like people did communicate with each other before there was email. They would write letters and they would, there would be this correspondence, this murasala. There would be a correspondence between people. I think this battery is dying. Uh, Obeid, maybe, uh, if I don't know, Marcus is back there or something. I think this one will be my suspicion. But it's still green. I don't know. It's for you guys to figure out. Uh, inshallah, may Allah make it easy. So people did communicate. So, you know, the point is, he starts off, he says, Rahimahullah ta'ala wa nafa'allahu yahu bi'ulumi fiddarin. Ameen. He says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ila akhi wa siddiqi al-Ustad al-Alama al-Muhaqqiq al-Sheikh Abdul Fattah al-Ghudda, Abi Ghudda, Adamullahu tawfiqa. So he starts off and he says, To my brother and my friend, the honorable teacher and the, the scholar of great repute, uh, Sheikh Abdul Fattah al-Ghudda, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to bestow his tawfiq upon him. So this is how he starts the letter, right? Uh, in, in the, and then Shaykh Abdul Fattah, he puts a, um, a footnote. And he says, uh, this is from the humility of the Shaykh and the excellence of his character. Because the reality is that I am like a grandchild in front of their grandfather in relationship to him. You know, so basically what he's saying is like, this open, the, him addressing me like this is out of his adab, whereas he's far senior than me. Right? He's, he's from, and generationally speaking, it's true. Like, you know, he's probably several generations older than Sheikh Abdul Fattah. So he's saying, like, you know, we're not, it's very kind of him to do that, but, you know, it's out of his kindness. Uh, then he continues, and he says, Your blessed book has reached me. Um, uh, and, it, and it has really beautiful meanings. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, you know, what you, to, to basically maintain this relationship and this love that's between us. Uh, and he said, and I read the book, and I found that it's very beautiful, and your additions to it are very nice, and so on and so forth. And then he says, and when I was reading it, and I thought about it, these are some thoughts that came to mind, and I wrote them down. And if you like, you can put them in your book, if you decide to, and if you don't decide to, then that's okay, you know, it's up to you, basically. And then he writes like the following words. Uh, so what's important here is that in the begin in what uh, Sheikh Hassanain says here, there's kind of like a commentary on the idea of tasawwuf and where it fits in the Islamic tradition. Uh, so testing, okay. So he says, first of all, that there is one kind of tasawwuf, which is the tasawwuf of Imam al-Muhasibi. Tasawwuf is a word that's used in different contexts for different meanings, but essentially the idea is the, uh, the knowledge and practices that would lead a person to become more honest in their relationship with Allah. Um, and so what he's going to talk about here, and I'm, I'm not going to go into it a lot, but basically He's saying that the first possibility is the true tasawwuf that is established in the sharia. So he says, what you'll find in this topic is that Imam al-Muhasibi, the author of this book, 
he was an imam in that realm. He was a well-respected, knowledgeable scholar in hadith, in fiqh, in theology, and he has many works and he's very well known and so on and so forth. And he also wrote in this realm of maybe we can call it Islamic spirituality. Uh, and then he says, um, you know, that one of the things that you learn from this text and from the works of Imam al-Hasibi is uh, the adab that is required, the manners and etiquettes that are required when we're trying to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we're trying to worship him. And that that, that body of teachings is essentially the essence of the sharia. Uh, is the essence of the sharia. So what they'll always say is that the outward teachings of the religion, that's the sharia. And the inward teachings of the religion, that's the haqiqah. So there's the outward boundaries that one has to maintain. You know, I have to act in a certain way. I have to do certain obligations. I have to avoid certain prohibitions, so on and so forth. But then there's an essence that is at the heart of that. And the essence that's in the heart of that is this question of how do I purify myself spiritually? And Imam al-Wahasibi is someone who contributed to that realm. Uh, and if you put emphasis on that, then the person will be able to combine between the outer forms of knowledge that are required in the religion and action that's required in the religion and also the inner forms of knowledge. And when you have the inner and the outer, then the person becomes truly complete in their relationship with Allah. But if they only have one and not the other, then it leads to problems. And then uh, in the introduction, we're not going to say it all, but he basically starts to mention all of the, uh, not all of, but many of the names of the people of, that were known to be like true imams of Tasawwuf from the very beginning. So, and then he lists a bunch of their names. And we talked about last time the importance of saying the names of some of these people. So uh, he says, for example, from them are uh, Hassan al-Basri, who died in 110 after Hijra, and Ibrahim ibn Adham al-Balkhi, by the way, where's al-Balkh? Balkh, anyone? It's always important to mention these things, you know? Balkh, anyone Balkh? Where's Balkh? Afghanistan. No bias intended. He died in 116. And then there's Abu Sulaiman uh, al-Ta'i, Dawood al-Ta'i, who died in 165. There's Al-Fudayl ibn Iyad, who died in 187. And then there's Ma'roof al-Karhi, who died in 201. You know, so all of these are like really big names from the very beginning. One of the points of why he's mentioning this is to make it clear to people that the idea of this knowledge that relates to a person's spiritual development is a knowledge that was there and understood from the beginning of Islam. It's not like something that came later on and then like, you know, some people float around different ideas. Now, Tasawwuf actually just came from Buddhism. But the Muslims, they, they started to be introduced to Buddhism and then they wanted to incorporate these ideas into it. No, it's not actually the way it worked. You know, Hassan al-Basri was raised in the household of the Prophet And these people were known people. They were respected by the Imams of their time. They were the people who really contributed to this knowledge and so on. And they're really amazing people. You know, when you read their biographies, maybe we can do that another time. But Ma'roof, Ma'roof and Karki, there's an amazing story that's mentioned to, about him. I think I've mentioned it before. But it's a beautiful story nonetheless. And uh, it was actually the case, and Muslims should pay attention to this, that Ma'roof was a Christian. And his parents sent him to a Christian teacher to teach him as a child. And the teacher was very severe. And he used to be harsh with him and hit him and stuff like that. And Ma'roof ran away. 
And when he ran away, he met the Muslims. And he decided to become a Muslim. And then he went back to his parents, and they were like, you know, we'll follow whatever you're on, essentially. And they became Muslims too. And, uh, but one of the stories that's narrated about him is a story of when he died. Right, so when we die, the, uh, the angels come and they ask you the questions, right? Who was your Lord? What was your way? And what do you say about this man, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And hopefully we say that Allah is our Lord and Islam is our way and this is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it said that, I guess someone saw this in a dream or something, uh, that Ma'roof when he died, uh, the angels came to him and they said to him, who's your Lord? And he said, Ma'roof. Uh, you have to understand the Arabic word. Ma'roof means it's known. Right? Ma'roof is something that's known. It happens that that's also his name. So uh, they said, who is your Lord? He said, Ma'roof. And they said, what is your way? And he said, Ma'roof. And he said, what do you say about this man? And he said, Ma'roof. He's not talking about himself, obviously. What he's talking about is like the reality of God and the reality of Islam and the reality of the Prophet is so clear that I don't even have to answer this question. It's just Ma'roof. Okay, that's what he's saying. It's like, I've said this story before. The first year we were in Egypt when there was Eid. You know, Eid in America, what do you do? You look it up on the website, you find the first Salat is this time, second Salat is this time, you know when to go, stuff like that, right? First year we were in Egypt, so that's what we know. So we go up to the Imam of the Masjid, and we're like, when is Salat and Eid? He's like, Ma'roof. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so we're like, okay, we come back the next day, we're like, when is Salat and Eid? He's like, it's Ma'roof. <laughs> Eventually we realized, for the Egyptians, it's Ma'roof. Like, the sun rises, and then 20, 30 minutes after the sun rises, everyone prays Salat and Eid. Like you just, that's what it is. It doesn't need a question, you know? So, anyways, the angels asked him the questions. And he said, Maruf, Maruf, Maruf. And they're like, what is this, you know? So the angels go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they tell Allah. And they tell Allah, this to happen, we ask the questions. He said, Maruf, Maruf, Maruf. And then it said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Hada abdi Maruf, innuhu Maruf, fatruhu. He said, this is, my, this is my servant, Maruf, he's Maruf. So leave him be. Basically, like he's good. Don't worry about him. All right. So these are amazing people. You know. Uh, then he starts to mention more. Uh, Abi Nasr, uh, Bishr ibn, Har ibn Harith, who's also a huge name. Two twenty-seven. He's again. These people have stories. You know. They say he's he's Bishr the barefoot, because what's said about him is that he had this. The short of it is that he had this incident. And he basically ran out without any shoes on. And that's the incident that led to his toba. And so after that, he would walk around with no shoes on. He didn't want to wear shoes afterwards. Because he wanted to remember the, mo like the way he lived his life. And then he had this moment where he changed his life. And that moment when he changed his life happened when he, was, he didn't wear shoes. So he became a person who doesn't wear shoes. You know? So he's known as Bishr the Hafi, Bishr the Barefoot. Uh, this is, you know, amazing people. 227. He died in 227. And Harith al-Muhasibi, the author of this book, he died in 243. Uh, Dhunun al-Misri, he died in 245. Uh, Siri al-Saqati, died in 257. Um, who does he say after that? Yahya ibn Mu'adh al-Razi, died in 258, Nisafur. Uh, Sa'id ibn, ibn al-Kharraz, died in 277. Sahid ibn Abdullah al-Tustari, died in 283. Junaid and Baghdadi died in 297. So all these people are, you know, big people. It shows you how many of them there are. 
This is, by the way, we've said this before, this is the way of Islamic studies. There's no break. No. Don't believe this narrative, that there was, like, there was this break that lasted for 500 years and everything just went to hell, and then like, now we're reforming it. You know? That's not the way it works. There's continuous, from the time of the Prophet وسلم, up to today, in every discipline of Islamic studies, there's a continuous chain. So if you, when you see these names, you see it like, oh, five years, five years, five years. All these people, they met each other, they knew each other, they engaged with each other, they understood each other, so on and so forth. And there's many other names. I won't mention them all. Like one of them, Ruwaym, he died in 303. Ruwaym has a beautiful statement he told his son. He said, oh, my son, he said, make your actions like flour, uh, make your actions like salt and your adab like flour. Right. Make your adab, your manners like flour and your actions like salt. Right. So you bake, say you're going to bake some biscuits or something. You're going to use your grandmother's recipe and bake Newfoundland tea biscuits. And you put five uh, cups of flour in. And after you put the five cups of flour, you put like a very small amount of salt. Very small amount. So he's saying, what? Like, make your adab, your manners, the flour, and make your deeds the salt. It's very wise, actually. You know, like a bunch of deeds, and you don't have any adab. Uh, alhamdulillah. Allah forgive us. We're not really people of Adab either, so Allah forgive us. Qushayri, who wrote the famous thing, he, uh, essay, he died in 465. It's not an essay, an epistle, 465. Uh, and Ghazali died in 505. Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, who died in 561. Suhar Wardi, he died in 632. Um, Imam Abul Hassan al-Shadri radiallahu ta'ala anhu who died in 656. So you see this continuous chain. Some of these people, we've read their books and stuff. It goes all the way up to today. So basically he mentions all these people. Uh, Shaykh Hassanain mentions all these people and he says like this is the way of the people who came before and these are, this is the right way. And then he says, and then there's the other side. And the other side is the people who claim to have a relationship with the Sawuf, but really they don't have any relationship with it. And they are the people who claim this like spirituality, but they don't actually, you know, they have ideas in their beliefs that are off. And when it comes to their actions, they make excuses for doing things that are haram when you can't make excuses for it. And everything that they do really doesn't have any kind of foundation in the religion, you know. And those people were uh, legitimately criticized. And he says, and he specifically mentions, and from the people who criticized them, were, uh, and I quote, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and al-Imam ibn Qayyim. This is coming from Shaykh Hassanayn Muhammad Makhlouf, Mufti al-Diyar al-Masriyah, previously. Huh? Okay, we'll see what happens. Thank you. Uh, so he gives basically that introduction to clarify that point. Okay. Then there's another introduction that he takes from the work of Imam al-Shatibi Rahimahullah One of the reasons why this is uh, There's a wisdom to this that's maybe not clear Okay, so A lot of the conversations around Tasawwuf The negative ones A lot of them are related to conversations around Bidah Okay, blameworthy innovation And Imam al-Shatibi was one of the people Who is at least often understood for his it's often understood that his approach to this was more rigid. 
Okay? So he brings a, a passage from him that's very long about the reality of tasawwuf and that it's part of Islam and that anyone who says otherwise is basically foolish and they don't know what they're talking about. And all of that is from Imam al-Shatibi. Uh, he talks about in here like the historical development. He says when the Muslims in the early parts of Islam, everyone knew that the greatest generation was the Sahaba. And then they knew after that that the greatest generation is the Tabi'een. And after that it's the followers of the Tabi'een. And then he says the great people after that were known as Zuhad. They were known as like people of spirituality and asceticism. Zuhad and Ubad. People of worship and asceticism and stuff like this. And he says, and then after that, everything got mixed up. And the righteous people were known as people of Tasawwuf. He says from that, from that early on. Talking about like five generations in maybe. Okay? Uh, this is from Ash-Shatibi. Um, then he starts to quote some of the nice things that these people said. So we'll quote some of them because they're beneficial. So one of the things that he says in the beginning is that the people who were most severe actually on the question of blameworthy innovation and bid'ah were the people were the people of Tasawwuf. And uh, you know, people will say and the harshest critics of Tasawwuf are usually the people of Tasawwuf. Because they would say, like, these people they're claiming this thing, but they're not doing it. They would be the first ones to criticize them for not doing it. And say that it has to be according to uh, the Quran and the Sunnah and everything else. Okay? So here's an advice. I posted this one online, but just in case you didn't see it. Qala Abu Ali and Hassan ibn Ali and Juzajani. I'm still not convinced on this in case anyone is following the conversation on Facebook, but <laughs> we'll just go with Juzajani for now. I, I think that uh, you know the Muhaddithin or the Muhaddithin, I accept it. But I have other questions around Arabic language and how it's used and how words come into it and things I can't answer because, you know, I just can't. But maybe there's an answer to them. But anyways. And Joe's Jen is in modern day. It's your second chance. Modern day, if you had to guess based on the previous one. Joe's Jen is in modern day Afghanistan. <laughs> Bravo alaikum. Yeah, it's like, uh, subhanAllah, I called my mother-in-law today because when this question came up, this person questioned. The point is in the book, he said, it says, and Joe's Jen, and Joe's Jen. And someone commented on the post and said it's a typo, it should be Anjuzajani. I was like, okay, alhamdulillah. So I called my mother-in-law, I'm like, what do you guys call it? She said, we call it Jojjan. I was like, oh, okay. So there's a sukun on there. <laughs> At least in the Farsi, there's a sukun on it. I don't know how they brought it into Arabic, but whatever. Alhamdulillah. Anyways, he said the following. من علامات السعادة على العبد تيسير التاعات عليه وموافقة السنة في أفعاله وصحبته لأهل الصلاح وحسن أخلاقه مع الإخوان وبذل معروفه للخلق واهتمامه للمسلمين ومراعاته لأوقاته. It's very comprehensive. He said, he said the signs of a person's سعادة are the following. Oftentimes in, in our books, Sa'ada is usually a reference. We use it in modern Arabic for happiness, right? But usually when you look at the text, it's actually referring to the hereafter. Like a Sa'ada is usually a Sa'ada al-Abidiyya. The way it's used. Or like a Shaqawa or Sa'ada usually refers to the hereafter. So it's likely that this is saying that the signs that a person will be happy in the hereafter are the following. Number one, the uh, acts of obedience are facilitated for them. 
and that their actions accord with the Sunnah, and that they keep the company of righteous people, and that they have good character with their companions and their peers, and that they extend good to the creation, and they have a concern for the Muslims, and they are, um, they are strict with regards to their time. They're strict with regards to their time. These are their signs. Uh, then, he was a- then he was also asked, how is the path to Allah? And he said, the paths to Allah are many. And the one that is uh, the most clear and the furthest from uh, doubts and basically falling off the wrong way is to follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in statements and actions and in their intentions and the things that they carry out and the things that they want to do. If they follow the sunnah in that, then they'll be good. And then it was said to him, so what is the path to the sunnah? And he said, the path to the sunnah is to stay away from innovation, bid'ah, and to follow that which was agreed upon by the first generation, of the, like the first era of the scholars of Islam, and to follow that. So the point of this is to say, this is a person who's committed to spiritual development, and what is he saying? How do you do that? You do that by following the sunnah. You do that by following the sunnah. You don't do it by doing other things. Okay, uh, then another one. Says Waqala Abu Umra Zajaji, Wahua min Ashabin Junaid was Sufiana Thori Wahima, Kananasufin Jahiliatiat Baruna Matastahsinuhum Rukuluhum Wataba'iruhum. Faja and Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam for Rodduhum in a Shariati with a Tiba, Fala Aklus Sahihu and Lady Yastahsinu Mayastahsinu Mishara. We are stuck behum, I stuck behum. This is extremely important. He said, uh, this person who kept the company of Al-Junaid, Sufyan al-Thawri, and other prominent people, he said, in the time before Islam, people used to follow whatever they thought was good based on their nature and their mind. Just think about that one for a second, okay? Before Islam, people used to follow whatever they thought was good based on their own opinion and their own desires and leanings, basically. He says, then the Prophet came and basically placed them on the Sharia and on following the way of the Prophet He said, and so the sound intellect, it sees as good what the Sharia sees as good and it sees as bad and ugly what the Sharia sees as bad and ugly. This is really important, you know, that we have to train our minds and our hearts to be aligned properly. We can't trust ourselves to be able to... It's, it's a difficult thing, because we have to trust ourselves at some level. But we have to trust ourselves insofar as ourselves are calibrated with the truth. So my, my objective is, I want to constantly try to calibrate myself with the truth, so that when I look at things, I can trust my gut feeling a little bit on it. But, you know, as it came up this morning actually in the other class, because there was a the question about the hadith where the Prophet them told one of the companions when he was trying to know good and bad, he told him, ask your heart, stafti qalbak, you know, ask your heart. So they were like, well, and how does this work? I said, well, you know, there were definitely times when if I was to ask my heart what to do, my heart was going to definitely give me the wrong answer, you know. <laughs> I'd be like, so what do you think you should do with this? Yeah, you should definitely do that. And it was totally the wrong thing, right? So the goal has to be 
that we want to get sound knowledge. And when we have sound knowledge, then we can rely on that. And we use that to inform our perspective. And so then we can say, you know what, this doesn't feel right to me. And I can start to ask more questions. But because I know how to calibrate, right? But if we're not, if we don't have like enough self-awareness and enough self-control to be able to do that, then things become very difficult. And so this is why, you know, one of the most essential things of our spiritual development is to kind of just get ourselves right. Because we can't, st we can't really see right from right and wrong from wrong if we're not right inside. Like I have to get some level of internal equilibrium, some level of internal balance, some level of internal stability, so that I can trust my opinions. You know? uh, and by the way, this is a process. It's not just going to be like an overnight thing. But ideally, we can start to understand ourselves better so that we can do that better. I'll give you a very personal example. Some people are here, they, they witnessed it. Uh, I think it was like last, maybe Monday night. I think it was Monday night. Maybe Tuesday, you know, I wasn't doing so good. And uh, I was a little bit sick and I had a bad headache and I was angry about some things in community life and like things were not, it wasn't a good situation, okay? And someone asked for my opinion on something and I basically told them like, I can't give you my opinion on this right now because anything that you ask me right now, the answer is gonna be, burn down the world. <laughs> like, that's basically, whatever you tell me, I'm gonna say no, break it, it's not worth it. Like, it's, it's all gonna be bad and negative if I give you this answer right now. And so alhamdulillah, I didn't do it. And then within like a day or two, things kind of like settled down a little bit and it's like, okay, now I can think about this thing. But if I had thought about it before, it was going to be a problem. So we have to, like, and alhamdulillah for me, that's, that's an improvement, alhamdulillah. So I'm happy about that. But, you know, it's like, we have to put this effort in. And the more that we can know ourselves, that's why they always say, the one who knows themselves, they know their Lord. The one who knows themselves, they know their Lord. Because otherwise, things start to get really convoluted. You know, I have to have... Uh, I want to have a steadiness, okay? Another thing that was said about this, about this, you know, having, part of having adab with the Prophet وسلم, and with Islam is to recognize things as they are, you know? So, uh, so I'll just read the quote and then it'll be understood. So he's saying, uh, Maybe I should go back, actually. I, didn't, I wasn't planning to read this whole thing, but I'll, I'll read the whole thing. So it's narrated uh, that it was said, Abu Yazid al-Bustami. Abu, Abu Yazid al-Bustami is uh, uh, also like one of these famous figures in the world of spirituality. He said, عملتُ في المجاهدتي ثلاثين سنة فما وجدت شيئا أشد من العلم ممتابعته so he said basically, he said, I've been struggling against myself for 30 years. Abu So I've been struggling against myself for 30 years. And in that time, I didn't find anything uh, that was more difficult than knowledge and following it. 
I didn't find anything that was more difficult than knowledge and following it. So one of the things that was said to us by someone when we started our studies was like, if you're going to study fiqh, you have to be careful. Because the person who studies fiqh, it's really easy for them to make loopholes for themselves and become a corrupt person. Because they know all the ways around it, you know? Like, you could do it this way, you could do it that way, you can make this little pocket here, and then you can step into that pocket, and you can make this loophole. You can, there's always some excuse you can come up with in the law, or like some angle you can take in the law, that if you were to tell it to any reasonable person, they know that it's complete nonsense. But, like, the edifice starts to confuse people, you know? So I was like, who's going to come up with the idea, for example, that you can get married without a wali and no witnesses? Only someone who studied the law and knew this opinion and knew that opinion and tried to bring them together for their own benefit. It's the only one who's going to come up with it. Any regular person, without any outside influence, if you were to come to them and tell them you can get married with no wedding and no witnesses, they'd be like, get the heck out of here. What are you talking about? That's insanity. A regular person would know that automatically. When someone who studied the law, they start to play games with these things. right? So they say that, uh, he said, I didn't find anything that's more difficult than knowledge and following it. Just to know, this is what it is, and you have to do it. You have to follow it. So he said then, after that summary, basically, then it was said about him that someone was with him, and he said to them, get up, let's go and see this person who became famous, who actually made himself famous for having a high station with Allah. You know? Shahra bin wilayah. You know, he made himself famous that he's, he's this righteous person. Mashallah, let's go visit him. So they, said they, they got up and they went to visit this person. And he was someone who was well known for his piety and his asceticism and all this kind of stuff, right? He says, so they went to the person, and the narrator says, we went to him. And the person left his house and he went into the masjid. And then when he went into the masjid, he spit in the direction of the qibla. Doesn't make sense to us because we have carpet masjids, right? But these people had sand masjids. In the time of the Prophet, it was a known thing. Like in this, there's actually stuff in the Sunnah that says if you have to spit and you're in the masjid, you should spit on your left side. You cover it up. There's there's like a certain etiquette to it. But they saw this guy. He came into the masjid and he spit in the direction of the qibla. So when he did that, Abu Yazid he turned away. Uh, he he just turned and he walked away. He didn't even say salam. He just he just bounced. <laughs> you know, he's like I'm gone. He left and the guy and then. They said, they're like, what's going on? He said, He said, this person is not trustworthy when it comes to one of the etiquettes of the etiquettes of the sunnah of the Prophet So how can he be trustworthy with what he claims that he's a righteous person? It's like, yeah, forget that. He left and he went away. And he said, if you see someone given something from miracles, so much so that they elevate into the sky and they start flying around. <laughs> like imagine. He's like, imagine you saw someone who just took off, started flying into the air. And uh, don't be deluded with that until you see He said, don't think anything about that until you look to this person and you see what do they do with the command of Allah and the, the command of the Prophet and their prohibitions and the limits of the Sharia and the etiquettes of the Sharia? Don't care about any of that. This is really, really important. Sometimes people get, you know, maybe you're not going to see someone fly in the air, but you might see other things. You might meet people, for example, 
that seemingly tell you the things that are in your mind. I know this, I know people this happens to them. And they're like, I had this experience with this person. And then like after examination, it raised a lot of questions. Because like maybe the person's not exactly doing what they should be doing. So how do they know that kind of stuff? Uh, it's, it's a whole world out there that's beyond, uh, uh, it's beyond the children's books. So, you know, Allah protect us from these, uh, these kind of things. But the point is here, you follow the commands of the religion. If a person doesn't follow the commands of the religion, don't worry if they're doing anything miraculous, if anything's said about them. A more practical example is like sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter how many followers a person has, it doesn't matter how popular they are, it doesn't matter any of these things if they're breaking blatant laws of the Sharia. You know, it, it doesn't count. Like it, it, and there's no excuse for it, okay? I. Let me calm myself down for a second. There's no excuse for it, okay? So, like, if a person, say you have a religious leader, quote unquote, and they're doing things that are against the Sharia, and they're upset about it, you know, and then you're like, well, you know, they're, but they're human beings and they. You know, everyone can make Toba. Everyone can make Toba. I've said it a million times. Everyone can make Toba and come and pray in the masjid. Not everyone can make Toba and go back to the pulpit. Sorry. You know, like, you had a position, you abused the position, or you lost the position for any number of reasons. There could be varying degrees of that. Not, not everything's the same. But there's, varying, there's, there's degrees at which it doesn't matter. You know? Like, if you're an imam, and you have secret marriages, you're not an imam anymore. In my opinion, for life. Like, you're out for good. You can come and pray, it's fine. But you're out. Like, and you can get another job. You know, go work in a restaurant and clean tables or go to a car shop and learn to be a mechanic. Do whatever you need to do. Like, you know, may Allah protect us. I'm not making. Uh, you know, I, I'm not making any claims to piety and, you know, everyone, you know, just may Allah protect us. But, no, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. You know? There is a standard. Allah forgive us. We watch too many movies. You know, 50 years ago in movies, it was expected for the hero to actually be good. Now it's not expected for the hero to be good. The hero can be very conflicted. I'm fine with regular people. They can be very conflicted. <laughs> but, and even religious teachers and stuff, they can be conflicted as long as they don't make certain levels of mistakes. If they make certain levels of mistakes, then, you know, thank you. Then may Allah forgive all of us and accept from us and help us to get things right. Qala Abu Uthman and Hiri, Man Ammara as Sunnata ala Nafsihi Kaulan wa Fairlan, Nataka bin Hikma. ومن أمر الهوى على نفسه قولا وفعلا نتق بالبدع قال الله تعالى وإن تطيعوه تهتدوا amazing 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 this is an amazing istidbah and sometimes they'll say things and they bring it back to a verse and you're like man that's an incredible uh, lesson that you took from that verse so he said and the statement is whoever basically makes the sunnah the one who's in charge of 
uh, of themselves in their actions and their speech, then, then they will speak with wisdom. And the one who makes their desires the leader of themselves, then when they speak and they act, they'll act with innovation. Okay? So this is an important, a very essential issue. And this is, again, you know, one of the big problems with our online situation is that it's very Hawa-based. The entirety, practically speaking, the entirety of what we're doing in religion is trying to control our desires. <laughs> practically speaking, that's, that's the entirety of it, you know? Like, I'm supposed to act in a particular way, I'm going to control myself so that I can act in that way. People, if, if, and, and we've said this many times before, if people are doing seemingly religious things, but they're doing it out of desires, there's an issue in that, actually. You know, there, there's work that needs to be done. Someone might show up at Fajr every single day in the masjid, but they show up at Fajr every single day in the masjid because it makes them feel better than other people. That's hawa. That's not. That's not worship. That's desires. You know, they didn't. They didn't give the sunnah the priority. They gave their desires the priority, and it could look all kinds of ways. You know. And this is why it's so scary, actually, and, and why marketing is so scary, because all of this whole thing is designed to take advantage of our desires to get us to do certain things, right? And, you know, just uh, whoever does that, then the, whoever the desires take over, then they'll speak with innovation. And then he quotes the verse from the Qur'an, If you obey Allah, you will be guided. Look at it, subhanAllah, so simple. If you obey him, you will be guided. The whole statement before it comes from that little piece. If you obey him, you will be guided. Tells us, if I give the sunnah the priority, then I'll end up in wisdom. And if I don't do that, then I'll end up in innovation. Amazing, like, uh, amazing derivation. Okay. Uh, alhamdulillah. Then he says, this is all from Ashantibi. We're still in that statement from Ashantibi. Okay? He's like a middle period Andalusian scholar, in case you're wondering. Ashantibi's middle period Andalusian. Then he says at the end, after all of, uh, all of this stuff that's being said, Then, uh, must be Sheikh Abu Fatah, I don't, I think, because he's saying all this that I just brought from the statement of Imam al-Shatibi. But the point is after it says, uh, وَإِنَّمَا يُذَمُّ مَنْ كُلِّ عَمَلٍ أَوْ جَمَاعَةٍ مَا خَالَفَ الْكِتَابَ وَالسُنَّةِ وَهَدِيَ السَّلَفِ الصَّالِحِ رِضْوَانُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ So then he concludes by saying, after all this stuff that I just brought, the conclusion of all of this is to say that it's not appropriate for someone who has any sort of intellect and any sort of knowledge to blame the entirety of Tasawwuf or the, or or the Sufis, quote-unquote, just in general. It says, rather, one would blame any action or any group that acts in a way that goes against the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the guidance of the early generation of Muslims. May Allah be pleased with them. That's the conclusion. That's the whole point of these two 
introductions is to give you that conclusion, okay? Why did I spend all that time on that? <laughs> because we have to undo 40 years of propaganda. So hopefully it was of some benefit. Imam al-Muhasibi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. I'm not going to go into his biography in detail. I'll give you some of the general points that are mentioned here. And then, uh, you know, if people want to study in more detail, they can do so, inshallah. So Imam al-Muhasibi, he died in 243 in Baghdad. 243 in Baghdad. He was known as an imam, as I mentioned, in the various disciplines of knowledge, and specifically he was extra known for his work in spirituality. And this was the case, right? Like all of these great imams, there were imams in basically everything, but they became known for something. Abu Hanifa was an imam in aqidah, but he became known for fiqh. He was clearly an imam in spirituality because they say that he prayed Fajr with the wudu of Isha for 40 years, so clearly he was an imam of spirituality too. But that's not what he was known for. He was known for his fiqh, right? So Imam al-Muhasibi was an imam in the different disciplines, but he also was, uh, he became known for his, his work and his insights uh, in spirituality. Uh, he narrated hadith uh, he, from Yazid ibn Harun and, and that generation. He took knowledge from Imam al-Shafi. Uh, imam al-Junaid learned from him. And they had some different interactions that we might read one or two of them. Uh, so he was basically known in his time. Uh, one of the things to, to recognize is that the world of Islamic scholarship throughout most, his, most of history and, and definitely in that time period was very similar to scholarship in any other field. Like if someone is a high-level scholar in sociology, for example, today, they're going to know who are the major fields in the world of sociology, and if they have anything to contribute to sociology, they're going to be known to. They're going to go to the academic conferences. They're going to present papers. They're going to be critiqued. They're going to critique. They're going to be part of the academic world of sociology, right? That was true for the Islamic sciences. And these people were known to each other. It wasn't like they were random people that, like, we don't really know who this person is, but we're going to invite them because they have followers on Instagram. No, like you, we should know who people are. You know, have some sort of like legitimate track record on the ground with other human beings, not just uh, in alternate realities. Uh, so, anyways, he was known in his time and all of that kind of stuff. Um, his influence on Imam Al Ghazali was very clear. If you look at his work Al Riyaya, you'll notice that a lot of it is in the Ihya of Imam Al Ghazali. Uh, so, you know, that kind of shows also that he was, like for example, someone could be known in their field while they're alive, but their work doesn't really have an impact after they pass away. But someone else might be known in the field while they're alive, and their work in the field was so impactful that it lasted for generations and generations, right? He was like that, right? So Imam al-Ghazali is quoting him, people come after him are quoting him, they're using, obviously we're sitting here reading this book, you know, that like, if you think about it, like what I just say, he died in 243. That's a lot of years ago, right? It's 1,200 years ago. And his book is sitting in our hands and like it's known and it's studied and it's, it's, it's amazing when you think about it. Uh, he had like an interesting method when it came to writing. So this is the one story that I'll mention about Junaid. So there's a story about Junaid. Again, we, we've studied a text from Imam Junaid, right? Some of his quotes. He's considered like the Imam of spirituality. But Junaid was younger than uh, and Muhasibi. 
So one of the stories is that uh, Junaid says, Muhasibi would come to me and he would say, let's go, let's go out, you know, like let's go out to the desert. It's just like get out of the city and go to the desert. And then he'd say, like, why are we going to do that? Like, I'm here in my isolated place. I'm doing my thing. Why are you going to take me out there? And he'd say, no, 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 let's just go. And, uh, and then he said, and when we'd pass through the streets and stuff where we usually don't want to go because we'd see things we don't want to see, he's like, when I would go with him, we wouldn't see any of the bad things that we would normally see. It was as if, like, Allah kept us away from these things. He's like, then we would get to, uh, like, this desert, and we would sit down. And then a muhasibi would tell me, Junaid is saying this, right? Muhasibi would tell me, ask what you want to ask. And I would say to him, I don't have anything that I wanted to ask you, you know? Like, you're the one who told me, let's go out here and stuff. Like, it wasn't my idea. I don't have anything to ask you. And then he would say to me, no, ask me what comes into yourself. Like, what, what, what comes into your heart and your mind? Ask me that. He says, and... Uh, He's like, and then after that, all these questions would rush into my heart. And I would ask him about all of these questions, and he would answer them on the spot. And then he would go home, and he would turn them into a book. It's interesting. I don't know, like, subhanAllah, I don't know who these people were, but you know, I'd ask him all these questions and like spiritual development and the heart, and what is this, and what is that, and what's generosity, and what's... He'd ask him, like, whatever came to his heart, he'd ask him. Then he'd answer all of it, and then he'd go home and write it down. That would be his book. That's how he get his information for his books. Uh, you know, subhanAllah. They they're functioning in a different uh, system. Anyways, there's a whole section here on basically what he's doing is that Islamic history is filled with pluralism. Right? So people would respect each other, but also sometimes they would criticize each other. So there are people that were in the time of Al-Muhasibi who were critical of him. They would say certain things about him. Some of that's narrated from Imam Ahmed, so on and so forth. And then, so what he goes through is like a whole section here where he brings up some of those things, and then he brings up some of the responses to those things, and he basically concludes that like, no, this is a legitimate person, and even his contemporaries loved him, and, and you know, this is the context for all those things that were said, and so on and so forth. And he comes to that conclusion. Sure, I don't want to overdo it. I feel like if I don't start the text soon, you're going to throw apples at me. Which leads us then to the beginning of the text. Alhamdulillah. All right. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. We arrived. Bismillah. He says in the beginning of the text. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qala Abu Abdullah al-Harith ibn Asad al-Muhasibi rahmatullahi alayhi. First of all, he's known as al-Muhasibi. Al-Muhasibi means what? It means the person who is constantly taking account. He became nicknamed this because that was his habit that his self-accountability was so consistent and so strong that he, he became named after that. Some people probably have heard it before in different programs and things, the idea of muhasaba. Right? Muhasaba is like when you take yourself to account. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu used to say, hasibu qabla antu hasabu. You know, take yourself to account before you are accounted for. And on the day of judgment, the account will be taken. So before you get to the day of judgment, do it yourself so it doesn't end up there. You know. So Muhasibi was so, uh, imagine like 1200 years later, that's what he's known as. He's known for that particular action, that he was so strict on this with himself, subhanAllah. So qala Abu Abdullah al-Harith ibn Asad al-Muhasibi, like if you call him al-Harith ibn Asad, nobody will know who you're talking about. But if you say, oh, it's in muhasibi everyone will be like, oh yeah, Muhasibi, we know Muhasibi. You know? 
He said, Rahmatullah alayhi, Alhamdulillahi, Al-Awwali, Al-Qadimi, Al-Wahidi, Al-Jalili, Al-Ladhi laysa lahu shabihun wa la nadhir, Ahmaduhu hamdan yuwafi ni'amahu wa yabduhu mada na'ma'een. So on page 69. If you have it, you found it. <laughs> okay. So, he said, Alhamdulillah, who is Al-Awwal Al-Qadim. Al-Awwal Al-Qadim. And later on, and like if you take Shaykh Fuad's classes in Aqidah, one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Qidam. Al-Qidam, which is basically that Allah has no beginning. So when we say that Allah from the Asma Allah and Husna is Al-Awwal. He is Al-Awwal. He is the first. The first means that He has no beginning. There's nothing that precedes Him. And He doesn't have any beginning. He just is, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, so He is Al-Awwal, Al-Qadim, Al-Wahid, Al-Jaleel. The one who is magnificent. There's nothing that's similar to Him in any sort of way. And then He says, I praise Him, a praise in commensuration with His blessings and at the level of His blessings. Okay. There's a whole long commentary. It's actually moved in this version to the end of the book because it's so long. Shaykh uh, al has a long commentary on this. And, you know, basically one of the things it said is that we say this statement, but really in reality we can't do that, right? Like when we say, I praise Allah in a way that is uh, in, at the level of His blessings or like, in, in, in the, like as much as His blessings. But in reality, like we can't do that because His blessings are beyond that. They're beyond enumeration. So there's no way to praise Him in that way. And that's why they say, one of the wisdoms that they say about Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is that if a person really understands what Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim means, then that will lead them to praise Allah. If they just understood what Bismillah means, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, then immediately what's going to come to their heart is Alhamdulillah. But then they realize, I can't actually say Alhamdulillah in a way that meets like what Allah has given me. So the only thing that I can do then is say Alhamdulillah the way that Allah said it. This is the, one of the beautiful things about Surah Al-Fatiha. So I just say Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. That's the best I can do. I just say Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. So there's a whole conversation on that. We're not going to go into that. Then he continues, he says, So he says, and I bear witness that there is no God but Allah. He has one, no partners. The witnessing of one who is knowledgeable of Allah's rububiyyah. His rububiyyah is like the level at which he takes care of creation. Okay? He's the Rabb. He's the one who takes care of creation. Uh, in Arabic, when they talk about the homemaker, the homemaker is Rabb al-Bayt. Right? It's an interesting term because... The homemaker takes care of everything in the home. And that's, that's a lot of work. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Rabb for all of creation. Everything in existence, He's the Rabb. Every single detail, He is ordaining it and, and, and sustaining it, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then He says, and it's also the witness of one who 
has a knowledge of his oneness, subhanahu. And, that, and I bear witness that, the, that Muhammad وسلم, is his servant and his messenger who was chosen by Allah as the last of the prophets and the one who receives the revelation and the one who is the proof against all of creation so that those who are destroyed will be destroyed on clear evidence and the ones who will truly come to life will come to life on clear evidence and Allah is the one who is hearing and knowledgeable it's a verse from the Quran that's a beautiful verse actually when you think about it huh? the one it says look at the juxtaposition the one who's destroyed they'll be destroyed after clear evidence but the one who's not destroyed the opposite of it is the one who's brought to life truly that by the religion people are truly brought to life it says so he says to proceed Know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen from his servants The believers who have sound intellect Who are knowledgeable of Allah and of his command And then Allah described them with the characteristics of I always get this one Al-wafa Al-wafa I don't have a good I, I know there's a good word But what is it? Usually people say loyalty But loyalty is not like sufficient You know? Like it's uh, Yeah Fidelity Yeah That's a good word actually Hmm Problem is sometimes the good word is not understood <laughs> So fidelity But that's a good one so The point is They have wafa. Maybe we, a lot of words we should just learn them. Wafa, you know. Wafa is like, it's a loyalty, but it's a loyalty that fulfills everything that is that is meant to be fulfilled, you know. And there's a fidelity to it. That's nice, mashallah. So uh, he describes them with that characteristic and with good character, and that they have fear and they have an awareness and awe of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah said, those who, re those who take heed, they are the ones who have intellect. They are the ones who fulfill their covenant with Allah, and they do not break that covenant. And they connect what Allah has commanded for them to connect, meaning from the relationships that they have, their family and so on, and that they fear their Lord, and they fear a bad punishment, bad reckoning with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is how Allah has described them. This is how He's starting this, right? Um... We're going to not do very much and then we'll have dinner, inshallah. فَمَنْ شَرَحَ اللَّهُ صَدْرَهُ لِلْإِيمَانِ وَوَصَلَ التَّصْدِيقُ إِلَىٰ قَلْبِهِ وَرَغِبَ فِي الْوَسِيلَةِ إِلَيْهِ لَزِمَ مِنْ هَاجَذُ وَالْأَنْبَابِ بِرِعَايَةِ حُدُودِ الشَّرِيعَةِ مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَسُنَّةِ نَبِيهِ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَام Expanded their chest. Basically, he gave them this guidance, and he filled their he filled their hearts with iman. And you know, the affirmation of their belief reached to their heart. And then, as a result of that, they wanted to go to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So this is the pre the precursor is 
they have this, their, their heart becomes open to belief. And then after their heart becomes open to belief, that belief settles in their heart a little bit. And when it settles in their heart a little bit, then they have this desire to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in, the, in some of the books of spirituality, they call this uh, lawa. It's like an unsettling, uh, it's, like an, it's, it's kind of like to be unsettled, you know? The person gets unsettled with not having a relationship with Allah. You know, they're like, I, I'm missing something. I need this relationship with Allah, and I believe in Him, and I need this, and I'm agitated because I don't have it. You know? And that agitation leads them then that they want to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he said, when they get that, what do they do? When they get that, what do they do? They stay close to the way of the will and bab. It's like, well, who are they? The will and bab are the ones who were just mentioned before. The ones who have this intellect. They have true understanding and intellect. They find them and they stick to them. And they, they, uh, they, they, um, uh, they respect the limits of the Sharia and the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet and that which the guided people from the Imams agreed upon. So what is he saying? He's saying like, okay, you get this unsettledness, know that then when you want to go to Allah, find those things that are absolutely the things that everyone has agreed upon that are part of the religion and do those things. You know? It's not always that it needs a whole lot of philosophizing. You know, establish your prayers, don't oppress people, don't mistreat people, don't take people's rights. If you make a mistake, ask for forgiveness. If you did something wrong, apologize. If you, uh, if you make a promise, try to keep your promise. If you didn't keep your promise, ask for forgiveness. You know, basic akhlaq, you know, this is, but that's, you know, go to those things and hold fast to those things and give charity. And, 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 you know, do the foundational things. I think we have this problem sometimes that we just want more all the time. You know, I think about like sometimes in the books of fiqh, when you read the books of fiqh on the issue of the Eid Salah. On the Eid Salah, it always says the same thing. Which is the Imam should come on Eid al-Fitr. They should come and they should give khutbah talking to the people about Sadaqat al-Fitr. The charity of the day of Eid that's due upon everyone to give to the poor. That should be their khutbah. And on Eid al-Adha, the khutbah should be the rules of Adhiyah. Slaughtering and sacrificing and giving that to the poor. That's what it says in the books of Fiqh. Of course, that's not what we usually do in the khutbah, right? But that's what they're saying you should do. Because that should be enough. Like, it should be enough that the guidance of the Prophet wasallam is that we fast Ramadan and we do all this worship. And when Ramadan ends, we give this charity to people who are in need so they can enjoy Ramadan too. And when the Eid al-Adha comes, the thing that we do after Eid al-Adha is that we sacrifice an animal, and that should be enough. And we need to know the guidance on that so we can do it properly, and then we can do it. Right? And I had an interesting experience in Gambia, actually, around Eid al-Fitr. So I was like, oh, shoot, the end of Ramadan is coming, we need to give Eid al-Fitr. And again, in our experience, you want to give Eid al-Fitr, you go to the masjid, they tell you how much it is, you give it to them, and they distribute it, right? I was like, so what do we do about Eid al-Fitr? And they were like, we just give it to people. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, how do we do that? You know, I don't really live here, I don't understand. And they're like, we just know who needs it, and then we give it to them. I was like, subhanAllah. It's like so natural and so real and so just, you know, they're like, we just walk in the street and we find people who need it and we give it to them and that's our Eid al-Fitr. You know, that's our Sadaqat al-Fitr. 
And I was like, okay, well, can you help me? Like, I'll give, it, I'll give you some money. Like, you can do it for me. They're like, yeah, okay, we'll do it for you. But it's like, that's it. You know, you want to be guided, do the fundamental things. It doesn't have to be that there's all this other stuff. All these philosophies on men and women and this and that and, you know, all of this kind of stuff that people are going crazy over now. Listen, be honorable. Be true to your word. Have good character. You know, be humble. Don't oppress other people. These are foundational things. If you do them, inshallah, everything is good. And then he says, وَهَذَا هُوَ الصِّرَاطُ الْمُسْتَقِيمَ الَّذِي دَعَى إِلَيْهِ عِبَادَهُ فَقَالَ جَلَّ وَعَزْ وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاطِ مُسْتَقِيمًا فَاتَّبِعُوا وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبَلَ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ ذَلِكُمْ وَصَّاكُمْ بِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ He says, uh, we'll, we'll do these two paragraphs and then we'll end. And then he said, وَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ عَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّةِ وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءِ الرَّاشِدِينَ مِنْ بَعْدِ عَدُّوا عَلَيْهَا بِالنَّوَاجِدِ So he says, this is the Sirat al-Mustaqeem. To do what we said is the Sirat al-Mustaqeem that Allah called his servants to when he said, this is my straight path, so follow it. And do not follow the paths. To be, uh, and if you do, you will be split apart from my path, you'll be astray from my path. And that is what I've given you the advice of, so that you may have taqwa. That's what Allah is saying, right? So this is, this is the straight path. Figure out what the straight path is, follow it. If you don't follow it, you're just going to end up all over the place. It ha there has to be an anchor. The anchor has to be in the fundamentals of the religion. And the Prophet said, you should follow my sunnah and the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin min ba'di. It's very important, by the way. Very often neglected. The Prophet in this hadith refers to his sunnah as the sunnah and the Khulafa al-Rashidin, their sunnah as part of the Prophet's sunnah. So what Abu Bakr did, what Umar did, what Uthman did, what Ali did, it's also normative for us. And so follow that and hold tight to it. And we'll continue from here next time. Any comments or questions or anything before we break for dinner? How are you doing, Sidi? You good? Anything? Anyone, anything? Done? Like I always say, that's either really good or really bad. There you go. Yes. I hope so. So there was a quote that came before that said there are many paths to Allah. Right? In the beginning. Turuk. Turuk are many. And over here it's saying paths, but it's saying subun, which might be an interesting uh, thing. But it's saying that you follow the straight path, and if not, then you follow all these other paths, they lead you astray. How do we reconcile this? Um, I would reconcile it by thinking about like for example if we were to think about the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a freeway okay let's choose an LA freeway so that we have a lot of lanes and the first quote is saying that you have multiple lanes you can go on whichever lane you go on you're going to end up at the same destination 
The second quote is talking about if you get off the freeway and you like drive off the side of the road and start going up and down like the grass and hit a tree. <laughs> That's what the second quote is talking about. First quote is talking about lanes on the freeway. So basically like within the Sirat al-Mustaqeen, within the straight path of the way of the Qur'an and the way of the Prophet them, there's many options actually. You know, here someone could focus on one thing, they could focus on another thing. As long as it's still on the freeway, then you're on the freeway. And you're still on that same route. But if you exit the freeway, then it's a problem. That's how I would understand it. Uh, anyone else? Let's eat dinner. ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وفعنا بما علمتنا وزمنا عملنا عملا صالحا اللهم انقذ قلوبنا لا يكون بيننا من الرحلة عنك اللهم إرنا الحق حقا وزغنا اتباع وإرنا الباطل باطلا وزغنا اجتنابا اللهم زغنا حسن خاتمة اللهم زغنا حسن خاتمة نصر من الله وفتح قريب ومشر المؤمنين ونصر بسنة وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله بكمال الله وكما يليك بكمال سبحان ربك رب العزيز عما يسفر السلام والمسلمين الحمد لله رب العالمين Before we close, a reminder that we have a special guest this week on Tuesday and Wednesday Tuesday and Wednesday we have special guest of Sheikh Ahmed Saad al-Azhari uh, It's worth